Mm-hmm. I got to follow up on this. By the way, Wizzy, she's a mod here. Wizzy McNasty, I just want to say this. I saw your question. It's not being asked. So, Steven, this is no, there's no reason to actually answer this. But she was like, I wanted to know if we're safe with Phoenix. That's my name, right? With As a master looter, or will GM looting revenge be too strong? <laughs> I remember <laughs> that. That was right. I, can't, I, I, I was filming, and you totally ninja looted the spider boss. <laughs> I did. I totally remember that. Uh, he still thinks I ninja looted. No, <laughs> <laughs> there were no yeah. defining rules. There was no system in the game. Steven. I might honestly. I don't think I would. If I were to do the funny little like, just you know, check in on Samurg as he's playing and steal something from him, it would be like only during like you know the crescendo of his gaming experience like oh. where he's downing a boss and like he's been spending a lot of time to get there then maybe i just might pop in and be like yoink and then leave <laughs> oh my god dude on stream with no indication that it was you doing it just yeah. wait for that dumbfounded look where did it go where did it go just um. freeze all of the characters and this little tiny sandal like floats out of the sky and then just like hooks the item and just flies away that would be that would be great wings just flying up with you or have a duck fly in and take it oh <laughs> come on dude. and as it like lands next to the loot and does the like little head bopping thing and just pecks at it and walks away <laughs> great. a legendary duck comes oh. and just like one shot to you unbelievable <laughs> unbelievable i see whose side he's on it's, it's enough wizzy we're having a chat later i'm just kidding <laughs>
savvy to the lore around the uh well the time of the fall and the apocalypse uh, definitely would encourage you to check out those and uh happy three years everybody we are now over three years old wow. as a podcast that's crazy <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah it, it's it's actually really surreal i think because i think we just do these day after day week after week month after month you know you put in the work you do the thing you do it you get back next week you rinse repeat Three years seems to go really fast, honestly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it feels like yesterday was uh, we had the leak come out about the website like yeah. a week before we were intending on, I think it was massively OP. Yeah. <laughs> we had like, what, a thousand people on the Discord? Yeah. Now it's like, what, 60 or 70? I don't even know. Yeah, that was the time. It was like, uh, it was like December of what, 2016? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was when my buddy told me about it. And I was like, wait, what is this game? And he's like, yeah, Ashes of Creation. You haven't heard of it? And I'm like, no. He's like, oh, Phoenix, you got to check it out. And I saw Phoenix on there. I was like, oh, that's my jam. It's a Phoenix game. <laughs> it was made for me. <laughs> it's Destiny, I tell you. <laughs> but um, yeah, what's everybody been up to? I know, Steven, you've been hard at work with everything, you know, with the game and everything. How's, how's life been? How have you been doing? Life is good. I'm in my living room right now. I apologize. Yeah. My my office, I, I the carpet's getting replaced tomorrow, so all my furniture is moved out of my office. So I'm temporarily yeah. temporarily set up here. The ducks have now learned to come to the door over here. <laughs> in fact, I keep the, I, have, I have a door on each side of this like little desk, and yeah. e each of them are open. So the duck will just the ducks will come in, walk behind me, and walk out the other door, and you know they'll do their little little trotting for some food. That's so fun. it's a good setup. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun seeing that on your uh, your Twitter, which, by the way, I saw you joined, like, what was it, a couple weeks I ago? know. I, I like, joined what? Twitter. <laughs> I, was like, I didn't want to have to always use the Ashes of Creation yeah. account to respond. So right. I figured, oh, I might as well join Twitter. Just get to it, huh? Yeah. Well, we wanted to make this uh, episode a little more about what the community wanted to, you know, ask questions about, really kind of curate some of the questions directly from them. Um, sometimes we focus on trying to curate a lot of them, you know, here on here on the show, the Pathfinders that are on the show. Uh, we try to like gather some really interesting questions or just things that maybe people haven't asked about. And we've had a lot of fun doing that. But you know, on these specifically these uh, anniversary ones where we're lucky enough to get you on, we really try to make it more about what the community wants to inquire about. Obviously, we try not to do things that are too repetitive or anything. Um, but, you know, with that being said, uh, I'm just going to kind of dig right in and, you know, really looking forward to the conversation because we always have a great time here. For sure. And always as a precursor to the audience, you know, I, mm -hmm. I don't I don't review these questions, but just know if there are things <laughs> I can't answer, I will tell you that yeah. I can't answer them, yeah. <laughs> but I'll do my best yeah. and try not to get myself in trouble. Right. So. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask a question about, you know, the vision, the name of the episode this this uh, this week is vision. Uh, the vision is something I reflected on. Uh, with the Ashes fam uh, on you know YouTube doing an Ashes talk, and you know kind of inquired previously like, do you feel the Ashes of Creation that Trepid Studios have really adhered to the vision? And you know, as someone who's followed this for five years, my opinion is that you all have. You've stayed the course, and quite frankly, it's it's a rare thing. It just is. As someone who's a creator and follows games and watches development, it's just not something you see very often. And I'm not even white knight. This is just true. This is just facts, man. And uh, you know, I wanted to ask a question, though, to get your ideas on something. And it's, you know, when you when you started this project and this game and the studio and you really, you know, were like, hey, we're going to do this. Um, what 
was your vision or this in an ideal world where you could see the community and the game and, and how it prospered when you saw the community dynamic and and how the culture of the community could be around this MMORPG have you had a vision of like what you hoped for um yeah i mean there's obviously you know a few visions at hand um i think very early on one of my you know ideas was to create a, a studio that didn't necessarily adhere to the norm in the industry right you know you always kind of hear sometimes horror stories in the industry about these like perpetual crunch studios or you know just listening to kind of suits as opposed to you know gamers or being kind of marketing driven from a design philosophy and these kind of like free to play aspects and i, I wanted to steer clear of that direction and, and really focus on making a game that um is at the heart of what MMO players want. So that was like one vision. And then the second vision was like, during that process, like, why don't we just open it up? I mean, obviously a lot of people said, hey, you shouldn't open it up. Like, these are ideas that you have. Other games are going to be watching you if you're successful and you develop some momentum. They're gonna try to take those ideas and incorporate it themselves and that's a risk, right? Well, I mean, Yes, it's a risk, but at the same time, like the amount of benefit that we have in being transparent and doing monthly updates and keeping people, you know, as part of that kind of design and outlook for the game is that we get to benefit from the feedback and we can watch in real time as we propose ideas and show stuff and we can we can change that along the way so it's kind of like you know okay there's a risk and there's an opportunity here um so that was one of the visions of the transparent development process another vision was um you know getting back to what made me fall in love with mmos in the first place and kind of anticipating that a lot of people out there who are mmo players share you know, some of those philosophies about putting like the massive back into massively multiplayer, right? Like that's a big push for us initially was, was, you know, taking something that's not just a beautiful game, right? Like obviously you guys see the environments and, um, you know, you, you see what's possible from a graphical fidelity standpoint, but like also incorporating hundreds of players inside of a battle, you know what I mean? And, and getting back to, to that as opposed to what, you know, what, <laughs> what many of us have experienced in recent iterations of MMOs, mm -hmm. which is where they, where they dumb that down to a lower quantity of players. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's just not, it's just not what gets people excited or at least it gets me excited. Um, so that was, that was another vision too. Um, I guess, you know, from a, from a community perspective, another thing was like, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, where the relationship between a developer and a player there's a there's a type of of two-way street of respect that can be established there um and i feel like <clears throat> i feel like we've we've cultivated a really good community at ashes right without even having yeah. the game shipped yet there's already bonds of friendship guilds that are forming podcasts like yours you know these the sense of community and the focus for that community with our project, and I'm not saying we're, you know, a unicorn in that sense. I've seen other, you know, in more indie developed um, games also kind of try this route as well. Uh, but I think it's a positive route. Um, I think as, as long as there's a level of expectation that's set amongst, uh, you know, that community and the developers 
and they know that this is a, a respected kind of two-way street where we give you updates, you give us feedback, we give you more updates, you give us more feedback. Like we're hard at work making something that we, our gratification comes from you guys being happy. Um, <laughs> as weird as that sounds, but like, that's why people get into gaming. I mean, if, if you're an engineer, you can make more money not being gaming oriented. You can go, you know, work at some big tech companies that aren't gaming companies and, mm -hmm. you know, probably make 20, 30% more average salary than you would at in the gaming industry. But that's not why people are in the gaming industry as professionals. They're in the gaming industry as professionals because they're passionate about what they're making in, in the sense that they see the satisfaction and happiness from the people they're making it for. Um, and that's true, I think, across Intrepid is, you know, every time we do a monthly update, our whole studio is tuning in. Like they're watching what's being said in the stream chat because when they see people get excited about the art they're making or the gameplay that we're showing or the concurrencies that we're hitting and the battle sizes that we're hitting, like that's that stuff is, is super exciting and motivational for us to keep pushing on because that's why we're doing what we're doing anyways. But yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, I think the mission's always been the, you know, to have a good rapport, um, with the community and, and to, to involve them in every step of the, of the, of the process. Absolutely. I'll definitely go, we'll kind of go round Robin here and go with that data list, man. You got? Sure. I've got more of a class kind of focus question here. Um, sure. so, Wanted to ask what your approach would be to make non-healing support classes relevant to group composition and more engaging for players. Yeah, I think, you know, I think when we, we think about non-healing support, right, we're talking about augmenting players' capabilities, whether that be defensive or offensive or utility. Um, you know, these, these types of non-healing-based support classes are really about like pushing other classes and even their own beyond what they're normally capable of if that support wasn't present. Um, what makes that engaging, in my at least in my opinion, um, with regards to these non-support classes is traditionally we've seen other MMOs, you know, you have these kind of like we call them buff bots <laughs> because because essentially they're just there to give you buffs. And then they're there, you know, you really this isn't all games, but the old old school games like Lineage 2 that I played or um uh you know, Terra or Ion or whatever, I would play these games and, and they would really be relevant only when the buffs came off. <laughs> so it's like, okay, give us more buffs. Right. Um, and, and that was trash in my opinion. I, I, you know, I don't like that. So when you think about like how we're going to incorporate, let's say the Bard, for example, you know, this is going to be opportunities where um, based on proximity, based on your, uh, 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 your, mobility and placement within the battle, you're going to have more significance. So it's going to be, to a degree, a tactical type scenario for those non-healing support classes to be cognizant of, you know, where on the battlefield they need to be positioned in, in, um, in connection with the group that they're trying to augment or support, right? And so that, that gives a little bit more tactical sense to these non-healing support classes that's more relevant to them than other classes per se. Um, and I think that's going to be a fun type of game to, to experience, especially for specific PvE encounters where there is, you know, zone denial that's present because of the skills that are being used by either raid boss or, you know, dungeon boss or <clears throat> different types of ads that can come onto your party, you know, being, being kind of, um, tactical in that idea is is i think going to be a fun interaction for those classes 
Makes sense to me. Well, I'll hand over to Half Tilt. I think he's got a few questions for you. Awesome. Love it. So I have a question about NPCs. Um, I'm curious to know if there's going to be kind of like a life cycle over the course of a, of, of a day with NPCs, if mayors are going to have any control over like a changing of the guard where maybe there's a, a, a five-minute window that somebody could sneak into your node during a node war. Um, just how are NPCs going to behave in the game, or are they going to be a little bit more static in their in their post? I think it depends, or obviously on the NPC. You know, we have behavior trees that incorporate, you know, waypoints and that have different types of activities that are going to be present. Those might be more situated to the organizational NPCs and not necessarily the guard structure of a particular node, as you brought up in an example. Um, but you're going to, you're going to see, I think, a, a collection of, of both, right? Where you will see um, behaviors that reflect, you know, some period of time in the day and you can expect some set like night and day or, some type of rotational period. Um, but then you're also going to have static NPCs that are always going to be present. And there's a need for static NPCs in an MMO world, right? Players have players play at different times. Um, and you don't want to necessarily limit, um, you know, the access to some, you know, Nighthawk player versus a day player uh, just because of, of when they have the ability to play, so to speak. So you're going to see combinations of both. Um, but I think where we place the NPC... Um, rotations that are relevant, those would be kind of, um, you know, rotations that exist perhaps within an hour, not so much within a day, so to speak. So there might be five minutes of some changing of, you know, an, an, an organization's um, acolytes in a temple or something. Uh, and, and that might be that might be because obviously there's a quest related to that rotation. So players are going to want to have to be acute in when they determine that, you know, going to that location, it's going to have to coincide with, you know, something that's at play with the behavior tree of those NPCs. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Nice. So I got, I got a question from a buddy of mine. He's a YouTuber named Deltia. He does over at Deltia's gaming. Um, I know he did a, Pretty sure he was on one of the earliest. Uh, I remember Deltia. Right. Yeah. I saw him at PAX one year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> he been... was over there with Twitch. I was uh, yeah, hanging yeah. out with him. Yeah. Yeah. He's back at the grind again. And I was like, hey, man, you want to ask Steven something? Because I thought it'd be fun. He's always got good questions, especially about like, you know, class, game dynamics, things like that. And uh, he asked a good question. It was one that uh, I, I had to ask today. And he said, how does Ashes prevent the power game between the casual player and the hardcore? Now, this is going to be kind of long, but it will help with context, I think. So in regard to the power creep between like my biggest concern is that folks who invest tons of time not having a cap um, ESO just removed their CP cap, but also limited the amount of slottable boost limiting power. Other games like BDO or Warhammer Online had these massive insane grinds that would allow this infinite power creep. And uh, so what's the long term incentive for people to keep playing and working towards improvement, but also what keeps new players relevant in power? I think that's that's one of the age old dilemmas of MMOs <laughs> yeah. is is striking the balance between, you know, the varying degrees of playtime that players have available to them and spend within the game, um, <clears throat> because uh, time, in a sense, is a direct you know, correlation to progression, right? The amount of time you spend in a game, you want to see progress from that time spent. Right. Um, and then that progress should be fun and engaging. So. You know, that's the general gameplay loop you come to expect from a persistent world is having 
you know, time equate to, to, to progression. Um, the way I think that ashes and MMOs conquer this to a degree, and I, and I want to caveat this answer by saying that I don't think there is an answer here that will satisfy everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on where you end up on the hardcore to casual side, <clears throat> you know you're going to you're going to have a different feeling with regards to this. But trying to strike a balance is obviously um, you know one of our endeavors. So the way the way we kind of approach this is we have multiple types of progression, right? And those di- those varying lanes that exist within the world. <clears throat> depending on the amount of time that you have available to you, there will be segments of that, of those progression paths that are, that are more immediately achievable. And that kind of respects the casual player. And then there will be, um, you know, achievements and or progression that require a significant chunk of time. Uh, and even those casual players that have the ability to, to achieve that, it'll just be at a further date out than the more hardcore players. Right. Um, the other important thing that I think Ashes does differently from other MMORPGs is that the world is a direct reflection of the activities of players. Whether those activities are from a hardcore player or a casual player, there are certain progression points that occur as a result of the mass populace doing something. Um, and traditionally in MMORPGs, you're going to see a larger population of casual players than you do of hardcore players. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles from a population standpoint. Um, and because of that, and the way that nodes collect experience and advance as a result of player activity, those casual players will actually have more impact on node progression then the hardcore players will, at least as I predict, because of the sheer quantity disproportionate between the two different groups of people. Um, now, with that in with that aspect taken into consideration, as nodes advance and those player populations move, you tend to see more hardcore grouped players progress further. Okay, so think of like think of a map of an MMO in a traditional circular difficulty going inwards to this kind of you know bullseye in the center where you have the most difficult content right that's traditionally how many of us have experienced mmos you start on the outskirts of these starting areas and you move inward to the map and these different zones and and that's how you have this kind of difficulty progression so you may see in ashes the smaller hardcore group of players progress further into the end into the late game content right <clears throat> but they don't have the numbers to influence the nodes in those locations as quickly as the more casual or at least lagging behind them larger population has near the outskirts so i think traditionally that's going to create greater influence from the casual players or at least i don't know if i want to always refer to them as casual players at least the non-hardcore players i can say <laughs> um uh, and and what what influence they have over the world's development. So it's a give and take, right? Um, you know, ca- casual and hardcore players are each going to have uh, levels of progression within certain paths that differ from one another. And um, striking a balance between what casual players can do with the amount of time that they have and feel accomplished in that in that time, um, I think we provide for in every progression path that's available, whether it be the adventuring class, the crafting um, and gathering and artisanship, the organizational, the guilds, the node system, the citizenship, the world building. I mean, all of these things impact the world in one way, shape or form. And there's relevant aspects to, to both hardcore and casual players in each of those progression paths. Amazing answer. Thank you very much. All right, I've got one that's uh, more related to game world and changes, and this is coming from Truly in the community. 
Uh, are there any plans to put mechanics or systems in the game to ensure that content in the game world changes? Just as an example, if one guild has owned a castle for multiple months during the next castle siege, could the attackers get some kind of buff which gets stronger with each siege until that guild loses control of the castle? Or, and I guess this is coming from me here as well, is it, would there be maybe an NPC event that might be triggered if a, um, if a guild has a castle for too long? Um, so I'll answer that in two parts, I guess. With regards to your example, I, I wouldn't, from a design philosophy, agree with penalizing success. Um, and if, there's, if there is a design issue with maybe the defenders having too easy a time versus attackers, then that's a different question. That, that would be a design assessment, right, and a balancing act. Um, but if a guild or a group of people or citizens, you know, of a node are successful because they, they have superior organizational skills, uh, they have a superior strategy, <clears throat> they're better at the tactics of, a co of combat, their class composition is more geared towards PvP. Like, if that's the case, I don't see the reason why we'd want to penalize that with an event-based system. But regard, regarding your original question of will we see things change in the world, uh, I think asses, uh, asses, <laughs> Ash's premise, oh God, that's going to get clipped. Happens all the time, uh, man. Happens all the time. I've done it. <laughs> I, think, um, I think Ash's Ashes is pr uh, whole premise is to incorporate events and changes and evolution that uh, not only represents player activity but also incorporates you know random story driven interruptions to the normal flow of the world um, and whether that be through blocking off specific roadways that are like you know. Um, the lifeblood of a particular node's incoming resources or uh, having, you know, random raid boss appear in a zone that never traditionally they did before. And as a result, it incurs, you know, in a complete change of climate that's now affecting crop rotations and only specific crop can come from that zone. And now the whole economy of the world has been thrown into chaos because no one's been able to down this boss yet. And we can't get the corn we need in order to build the reagents on the alchemical side to create this craft, you know, like that's the type of domino effect type system or event you want that appears in a natural non-injunction way, but it presents a problem to the players to that they have to accomplish something, uh, at least if they want to change it back to the status quo. Um, those, I think, are compelling events. Uh, and those, I think, are, are ways that the world can introduce an element of randomness um, that reflects what we experience in the real world. That's that's awesome. Very, very good answer. I'm sure truly I know I'm happy with that answer. I'm sure truly is too. So thank you. Wasn't even my question. I'm happy with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> also, my real name is Ash, so I totally understand the misspeech there. It happens a lot. <laughs> oh, that would suck to have that happen for you. <laughs> sometimes it's on purpose, sometimes it's not. You know, oh, I try to live up to it either way. <laughs> All right, I got a question here from Clumsy Ninja. He asked, how is the information gathered for libraries? When a library 
updates the last known location values for resources? Will it be when a player walks past those resources, when they interact with the resources, or will they have to interact with the library to show the info? That's a very specific question. And um, while I have design papers on that, we haven't implemented the system yet. So let me just preface this answer with prior to implementation, things can change. And after implementation, things can definitely change. So be aware of that. Um, but I will give you a, a brief kind of answer on how we anticipate that. So areas in the world are broken up into, into zones on the back end that we have, right? And as a player moves into a particular area, and let's say they find a resource node, and they go back and report that to the library, it will be able to update automatically when in that particular zone that received a report has a change in resource structure. Um, so it's kind of like you think about um, the Shroud of War and maybe any RTSs you might have played, right? Um, initially, prior to exploring a particular area, it might be blacked out. And when you do explore it, but you move away from active vision, you have it grayed out. You can see new structures that appear there because it's been discovered and it's grayed out, but you can't see troop movement. You can't see stuff like that. In a similar sense, the world in Ashes is broken up into these zones. And as a player reports to the library, we can see update or player, citizens can see updated uh, information for new resource nodes in that in that area if it has a report. Um, yeah, and, and 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 I think that only works for for uh, for resources. There's other stuff that's available through the library as well from an information standpoint um, that might have a report period. So essentially, if, if I come back and give a report on an area, that report may expire after a period of time, let's say a week, at which point it'll require a new report in order to update the existing information, right? So you'll get that Shroud of War functionality for the week after a report, but if it doesn't receive a follow-up report after that expiration period, then it will not be updating in real time. Beautiful. Okay. Nice. So I got a question from Dan Frozen here. Uh, Instead of town's population is 40% Tolnar, 30% Pyri, 30% Empyrean, would it look more Elven or more Tolnar? I'm sorry, <laughs> real quick. What were those percentages again? Yeah, 40 so Tolnar? 40 Tolnar, 30 Pyri, and 30 Empyrean. So it would be Tolnar. So remember, nice. even though it's a sub, uh, even though we refer to it as subcultures, um, <clears throat> the Empyrean. Uh, parent race uh doesn't really exist anymore right that's where mm -hmm. these sub races were where they came from so the Pyrian is like the parent race of the pyre and of the empyrean uh, elves both are elves right uh species wise but mm -hmm. they but they differ in culture so it's not as though they combine their you know cultural um contribution to a node's progression and then the node yields that type of of culture um, it is much very much so a plurality of contribution amongst the participating sub races um, so each of them uh, uh, you know are individually calculated nice i've got a question from uh geolus denor uh specifically on the economy um and he was asking if you could explain what plans might be in effect to regulate the economy in such a way to stop inflation or deflation or at least um address the potential impact of inflation and deflation uh of the currency as nodes or npc vendors increase and decrease in levels sure um this is also one of the very difficult 
uh, problems that in MMOs uh, exist, right? And that's because you you have designs, and those designs assume certain types of participation numbers or player contributions to systems, especially economic systems. Uh, and I think any I think the most important rule of MMO development is whatever expectation you have on the players, prepare to be completely wrong. <laughs> so, so with that being said, however. Uh, one of the natural counterpoints to the problem of inflation in an MMO economy is going to be gold sinks, right? And there is a significant degree of sinks that are present, not just gold, but also material sinks. Uh, there's deconstruction mechanics. Um, you know, all of these go to kind of curb inflation over a period of time in an open economy and MMO system. Um, so, that's our first and foremost, you know, co combat against it. And it's going to take some balancing through the alphas and betas. Obviously, we're going to collect as much as we can information on that. We'll do balance passes consistently on those types of, on those numbers. One of the other things, um, and I know the question is with regards to specifically vendors, uh, but I would say that I'm not a fan of the idea of, of enacting levers to control an open economy. I think the laws of demand and, and of supply and demand take precedent in any type of trade-related economy system where crafting and gathering is a central component of access to, to progressive gear, uh, especially when that crafting and gathering is respected and is on par with you know the top gear that you can achieve in the game. Um, that is going to be uh, obviously an important component where you don't want any outside influence. You want the economy to take its course um, with regards to vendors and merchants um, you know outside obviously of the sinks there's some ideas behind having adaptive price points um, that could be present in shops um, we'll see if that's a if that's a possibility it would take into account the server economy um, so we we obviously keep tabs on that in the back end we can see logging of you know how much gold is being generated versus sunk and how the economy is growing as a result of that um, and you can have adaptive tables present in merchant in the merchant place uh, areas that can affect prices of high grade or excuse, uh, late game economic points, right? So you don't want to impact the new player experience. Obviously, they don't come into a world that's you know fraught with money and have a lot of money themselves. They still have to work their way up. So you'd have to. You, this would only be applicable to certain items that have relevancy across the spectrum of adventuring levels, so that you cannot impact the lower level people. I like it. Yes. Love that approach. Yeah, I'm, I, do. I can't wait for this crafting system. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. I have a question from Wizzy McNasty. Will a non-combatant be flagged for looting bodies? No. Non, a non-combatant only flags if they attack another non-combatant or combatant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, follow up on this. By the way, Wizzy, she's a mod here. Wizzy McNasty, I just want to say this. I saw your question. It's not being asked. So, Steven, this is no, there's no reason to actually answer this. But she was like, I wanted to know if we're safe with Phoenix. That's my name, right? With as a master looter or will GM looting revenge be too strong? I remember <laughs> that. That was right. I, can't, I, I, I was filming and you totally ninja looted the spider boss. <laughs> I did. I were, totally remember that. Uh, he still thinks I ninja looted. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
There were no assignment rules. There was no system in the game, Steven. I might, honestly, I don't think I would, if I were to do the funny little, like, just check in on Samurg as he's playing and steal something from him, it would be, like, only during, like, you know, the crescendo of his gaming experience, like, where he's downing a boss and, like, he's been spending a lot of time to get there. Then maybe I just might pop in and be like, yoink, and then leave. Oh, (laughs) my God, dude. On stream with no indication that it was you doing it. Just wait for that dumbfounded look. Where did it go? Where did it go? Just freeze all of the characters and this little tiny sandal, like, floats out of the sky and then just, like, hooks the item and just flies away. That would be be great. Wings just flying up with you. Or have a duck fly in and take it oh <laughs> come on dude. and as it like lands next to the loot and does the like little head bopping thing and just pecks at it and walks away <laughs> great. a legendary duck comes uh-huh. and just like one shot to you unbelievable <laughs> unbelievable i see whose side he's on so it's enough wizzy we're having a chat later i'm just kidding <laughs> oh man this is from gruntag man steven what do you see as a typical day for a band of adventurers that choose to sell out to the ocean. Um, aside from other players, will this band of seafaring adventurers possibly run into NPC pirates at sea, sea monsters, storms? Uh, all of the above, question mark? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, obviously, so there's an NPC structure that exists out in the oceans, right? Um, <clears throat> these take the form of sailing NPC you know, fortresses, whether that be large frigate or galleon based ships. Um, and they take the form of raid bosses. They take the form of general sea based NPCs. There's um, treasures that you can find on land and explore out at sea, uh, as obviously one of the missions is why you would be going out to sea. There's escort missions that you can participate in. Um, you know, there are. Uh, for coastal nodes, there are hooks out to points of interest that take control of harbors. Harbors have a significant amount of influence over the waters. That's their, their primary hook, right? Um, and, um, you know, some of those are straightforward and interact with an NPC to receive a quest for, and some of those have to be discovered at sea. Um, so, you know, these are all, these are all things that are, you know, make that type of area in an MMO um exciting right you don't just want to have water for water's sake you want to have water because it's a different experience from a content perspective (laughs) than what's on land uh and in order to be a different experience you have to have that content yeah Uh, the uh nerd excitement is real right now (laughs) yeah it's it's beautiful (laughs) uh we've got another question this is uh there's been some chat around corruption uh in uh in the chat here and we've got a question from the community around that as well. So Grumpy Guy had asked, how critical will the reduction in stats be when one becomes corrupted? Uh, critical reduction stats. So, <clears throat> um, I mean, the answer is it scales with the amount of corruption the player has, right? So um, if you accrue you know, very little corruption, you murder one person, the impact is going to be relatively negligent. Uh, if you go on a murder spree and you have, you know, 10 PKs under your belt, uh, then you might start feeling a significant dampening to your skill effects against other players. Um, you know, that I don't want to give necessarily a, a number or a curve for players to extrapolate prior to us having the ability to actually test these ideas, right? And where those mm-hmm. numbers are going to lie. Um, but I would say 
what is the intent behind that dampening. The intent isn't to limit the fun of the player. The intent is to provide a give and take or a risk versus reward. Um, and the risk of continuing down the road of accruing corruption is not only the loss of your gear and, you know, amplified death effects, uh, but also um, your ability to perform in that activity. Ashes is a comprehensive game. It is not a PvP focused or a PvE focused. It is mm -hmm. a it is a comprehensive PvX game. And as a result, these systems are all interconnected and have to coexist with one another with certain types of mechanisms um, that can uh, you know provide that give and take that that push and shove. Makes sense. All right. This was one of my questions I was talking about on stream a few a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were talking about the crafting system and the discussion around progress bars came up. So when you start to craft an item, more difficult items or higher tier items take longer. You watch a progress bar, do, 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 do. It goes all the way up. Sometimes you're sitting there for 45 seconds a minute and you're idle while you're doing that. I'm, curious where your stance is um, between an impactful time for the quality of item you're crafting versus respect for players time and feel free to clip that sound if you want to add that while you're <laughs> uh, so the respect for players time is going to be directly correlated to the benefit received right so um, first point is going to be that um, the crafting times those aren't really where time is used, so to speak. Time is really kept on the processing side. Um, so you have gathering, you have processing, you have crafting, right? Um, you're not going to see these crafting times either in, you know, uh, I mean, you will see varying, obviously, crafting times that exist between professions. Um, uh, but I would say the predominance of, if I understand your question correctly, of how long it takes to do a thing, that exists primarily in the processing side. Um, uh, so yeah, and then the processing, obviously, the, how that time is determinant uh, from either being you know large or small, um, that is in reference to the quality of the processed good, right? So the higher quality good and the larger bulk processing is going to carry over time processes that exist for the player. Uh, now, the good thing is, is that um, these times are going to be unattended. So you don't have to be there, right, when you're processing the goods. You're going to have a system in place, a mechanic within either one of your freehold buildings or crafting or processing stations that you've, that you've created. Um, and you are going to have uh, the ability to place a, an amount of goods based on the rating of that particular processing station that you've built uh, or that exists. <laughs> You're going to have an amount to, uh, to put in there, and then there's going to be a correlating time uh, that can also be in, uh, de decreased if you spend time increasing the capabilities and quality of your processing station as well. So there's kind of a progression tier within that system uh, uh, also. And that's going to be very important as you get to kind of very late game processed materials that are required right because these some of these things might have days to process <laughs> within a station right but if you have uh spent the time and done the work to uh advance that processing station you could cut that down considerably perhaps even greater than 50 percent right um, and that's going to have a significant impact on your ability to either control markets or to create goods, um, you know, whatever your perspective is as a processor. 
Okay. I really like that. That's perfect. It makes those long days to craft resources really, really valuable and limited in the economy. And it's going to make the people that can process them a little bit more lucrative and sought after. So yeah, you still get a chance to go out and play the game and that's very respectful players yeah, time while I, achieving absolutely. the impactful experience. Yeah. I mean, that's the important thing is like in a lot of older games, you know, they did incorporate kind of that time spent as also a restriction on your ability to do other things in the game, um, which I think is an antiquated way of thinking. Um, it already is, it needs to be considerable in achieving these things anyways and having the ability to process them. That spends time. Now you don't have to also add time that you're taking away from the player and going out and experiencing the game's content, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. Love it. Thank you. Awesome. I've got one here from, uh, well, from uh, DJ Flemmy Flem, one of my mods. Do you plan on including class specific quests in the game? For example, defeating some sort of personal challenge to test your ability as a level 30 battle mage? Yeah, there are always going to be class specific quests, I mean, that exist in the game. And, and the reason for that is because classes. I mean, there's going to be a lot of shared quests, but there's also going to be class-specific quests. And the reason for that is, um, <clears throat> is that classes are some classes are better at others than doing certain things, and that'll play itself out through the general community quests, right? And that's fine. Uh, but there are certain periods from a designer's perspective where you want to make, you know, make an encounter be the antithesis of what a player's good at. It also gives them perspective because we have a more fluid class combination system where you can play the line in your traditional role by adding a secondary class that's right. different from your primary classes role um, the benefit of having these class specific uh quests early on especially in an archetype is that you can come to a determination and have greater experience for the things you're not good at so you know how to progress your class in the future with the things that you have access to that are different from what you're good at um, so that's that's a good thing to have and and uh i mean there's also like you know there's gonna be profession specific quests you know i as a mage am perhaps more interested in the working of the essence than let's say a fighter or a tank who is who is interested in perfecting their tacticianry or i don't know that's a word their tactics or um if it's not a word it should be a word. It, it is in vera <laughs> okay there you go yeah. uh, so you want to give them storyline that's relevant and makes sense for them you know to their class progression you know if i'm a fighter i should be going to a barracks and learning from this dude early on when i later later on if i want to take on that mage secondary and i'm more you know more arcane in the things I do or more at based in the essence then, then yeah, it makes sense for my also again, for a catered quest to me that lets me focus on that route in the narrative. Nice. Okay. Um, got a question from the community from friendly neighbor. Um, and this is kind of specifically as you were ideating on ashes of creation, were there any other names that you considered for the game other than ashes of creation? <laughs> yeah there were a lot of names um there was um so let me i guess let me correct this so early on we had a code name for the project the code name was the world of origins mm -hmm. and I, I don't know if we've ever actually said that in the past um oh, yeah. i don't know um and obviously that ties into you know the lore um and you know there's understanding there but then when we decided that that wasn't as catchy 
you know, as a name, how else can we incorporate elements of the story or this lore um, that uh, make for a more compelling title? Um, and, you know, we, we put together, I think it was myself, Peter, <coughs> uh, Bard, I think. Um, and we, we kind of put together an Excel spreadsheet, you know, all words that we feel reference in some way, shape or form the story. Um, and then how can we make combinations of those? Uh, and there were like eight candidates uh, that came to compelling combinations. Uh, but Ashes of Creation was, I felt, the, the best, rep both representation from the just a cyclical nature of what this, what, what this universe's narrative is, um, but also a, a potent reminder of the gruesome and and absolutely horrific story that exists on Vera and within the ancients um, and uh, how that goddess of creation played a role in, in planning, pre-planning this whole experience out from saving her creation to bringing them back. You know, this, it's just a, I thought I felt was the most compelling one. Any, any hints at some of the other names when it, able to share you know i don't <laughs> i just i know the code name which was the original name of the campaign right the world of origin mm -hmm. uh in pathfinder um the other names that came out of the kind of word game that we played i don't really remember them i could look back and see but ashes of creation stood out so much from them that that's just i never really looked back on what those other options were <laughs> fair fair yeah i gotta say too before we get before half tilt digs in uh I'm like super excited to find out about this whole story between the goddess of fate, goddess of creation and the, the gateways and like how that all, how that all got like, you know, planned out and everything. And obviously I think the light pack is going to have a big, a big role in some parts of that, but man, it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to that story for sure. But yeah, have to. Yeah. The light pack is yeah, love it, man. Love it. All right. I have a question from psychophobic. Will guild castles also be instanced for the initial AI raid to capture the castle, or will it be an open world raid the first time around so that players can sabotage each other's efforts before a capture? Um, we haven't really actually just to caveat this question, we haven't we haven't determined that guild excuse me, that castle sieges will be instanced yet. Um, and as a matter of fact, right now they're in the open world. Um, so that might not come to pass. Um, but also because your question, your question is about the original ownership and the NPCs that exist within them. Um, uh, those are also in the open world until, uh, unless we come across a test that, that suggests we should otherwise consider it instance. Very good, man. So this one was from, and, and I see, I see one, um, you know, just a reminder, uh, participation, uh, participations for castles does require registration, right, on the, on the guild's behalf. Mm -hmm. um, and what that registration allows you to do is to be a victor, is to have the potential to win. It, it grants the ability of the guild leader and or potentially officers, um, if we determine to go down that route, uh, the ability to seal the the ownership of the castle. Um, so you could have people who pass by see there's a castle siege in progress and just jump in and participate for funsies. 
but they're not having the ability in that initial assault against the NPCs uh, to actually win the castle. They could just be there and participate. The same could be true also for when a castle is owned by a guild and assaulted by another guild. Um, you could see uh, some players uh, participate in that siege if they're not registered. The, the, the problem is, is for being a registered attacker, you have the ability to respawn on the siege field. If you're not a registered attacker or defender and you die on the siege field, you are ported very, very far away to a very far respawn point. Um, so there's a significant disadvantage in that regard as well. Nice. Okay, so this one's from TLF. Will they now show what tier and which type of buildings the structures they sell will replace on freeholds? We will be. Uh, we haven't yet. Um, but we will be. And the, and the reason, you know, why we're kind of waiting uh, in that regard is because there's still some definitions that have to be determined uh, for that system, right? Um, and I'm always hesitant to release information, especially on designs and systems, um, until I'm fairly confident that those are going to be the actual final systems and designs. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that should be relatively soon. Um, I would say uh, it's going to be sometime after Alpha 1, but um, um, I would say sometime this year probably we'll have a an article that kind of details out what that is. Awesome. All right. Um, question here um, from Horrendous around the Alpha 1 zone map and progression over the testing cycles. So the Alpha 1 zone was supposed to be around 20 to 25% of the game world map. Will we see additional areas opening up in similar size during the testing, um, or will we be playing in the current map for the entire testing cycle? The Alpha 1 map, if I recall, is 70, 70 square kilometers, I think. Um, so it's not too far off that 20% mark. Uh, there are some additional areas that have still yet to be incorporated into the production client uh, that are present in the dev client, some additional dungeons and stuff. Um, so it's it's possible that there will be some addition to the map uh, before the Alpha 1 in June. Um, but um, we're not too far off from that 20% mark. Very cool. Okay. And honestly, just to caveat that as well, um, you know, you have what's you have in this Alpha One map that is the playable area, and then outside of that area are additional zones that may not be accessible during Alpha One, but as they are, they are there and part of the map. Um, they're just not as developed, right? So we might not get the time to get to those parts that are on the kind of outskirts and borders of the map area. Right now, they're just encapsulating the, the zone itself. Cool. Thank you. Right on. All right. My last one here is from Trob. Will the game have optimal cookie cutter or best builds in terms of race, augments, archetype, or gear set? Or will var variables like time of the year, celestial alignment, religion, node strength, impact stats, and effectiveness of a player making it harder to sim the best builds? Um, I'll break that up, I guess, into to two questions. So are there events that impact class effectiveness in the world? Um, well, I don't think so. Um, maybe, I guess, as an ancillary aspect from maybe equipment production or 
um, what they have access to from like an enchantment or tattoo standpoint that those could be affected by world events. Uh, but generally I would say um, that the answer to the meta question, <coughs> this is, I guess, a third relevant problem in MMOs, um, designing so that there's not a obvious meta. Um, I think that Ashes addresses that uh, in the best way possible, which is making your build very situational. Um, and what that means is the effectiveness and, and or application of your skill selection, choice, gear, gear kit, um, that is going to depend on your adversary or what the encounter presents you. Um, so in that regard, you have a stab at breaking the kind of meta problem. Um, but ultimately, then it just goes down a step further to, well, according to this situation, will there be a meta? Um, and I think that the answer is there's going to be more effective gear kits for certain situations, and those gear kits will be optimal. That's the, that's the whole point of presenting a variance of difficulty ratings that have different types of, of you know, rock, paper, scissors situations um, is that you should have a corresponding chase to some type of gear selection, right? And the demand, the, 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 the balance of what situations are presented to the player in the game is going to depend on the progression of the node system, which nodes have activated which types of points of interest and spawners um, <clears throat> to kind of present a you know, push and shove with the relationship of the world and the adversary you face. Um, so that's going to determine which types of challenges are predominant. And then there will be a correlating class that 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 is you know, overly effective against that type of adversary. And there will be a corresponding gear chase that is represented as well. But that dynamic changes in a fluid world where nodes can disappear. So what might be in flavor one month, you know, might not be the flavor two months later. And I think that presents players with a um, very compelling gameplay purpose with a chase. You know, oftentimes you just have a very vertical power scale and that determines chase. But when you have a variety of relevance across certain types of adversaries and that variety changes over time because of player activity, this, and then that affects the economy and the crafter system and who was producing what for what demand and everything gets shaken up. That's a very kind of fun uh, environment to exist in. It presents a more dynamic situation Situation rather than a quote-unquote cookie-cutter type uh, uh, selection. That's, yeah. There's so many things. The node system to me was the biggest workaround to that is you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what gear is out there until it's found by unlocking the nodes. Then it might only fit into one of sixty one of the 64 builds and play styles. And then you're, you're trying to craft all this gear and your caravan gets assaulted and you lose everything. You got to start all over again anyway. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there you go. Perseverance, friend. Perseverance. Ashes in a nutshell. <laughs> right? <laughs> love it. Love it. Speaking of ashes, I got to say that that dying effect that we saw. Oh, man. I was nerding so hard over that. That was so... I was like, oh, this is... A, I was... I was getting tired of, of, okay, so I'll tell you what prompted that. I was in a play test and, uh, you know, we're doing, we do internal play tests, right? And I was in a, I was in a play test and uh, we did something where we killed all of the players around. Oh, they were all bots and they all died around us. And I just saw all of these stupid tombstones above their <laughs> head. The tombstones are totally temporary, right? We, I said, we needed the tombstone early on to kind of like, 
think we were trying to find the interactable like uh, uh, player inventory or whatever. And we couldn't quite hit the, so we put like a placeholder tombstone there, and that just prompted me to re reminded me of like, oh, now I remember what I wanted to do with the death effects. Let's go ahead and let Jim know to start working on the actual death effects because I want to get rid of these damn tombstones because I want the pile <laughs> pile of ash with a little simmering smoke uh, present. So I went to him and I told him, you know. Like this is obviously a representation of the spark of essence that's granted to the player as through their you know creation by the gods, um, and they correlate to these ley lines and locations that exist around the world, the respawn points, right? Um, and in a in a way, we, I want to see just like the phoenix, the avatar of the goddess of creation, their body burns away mm -hmm. and their spirit leaves them to rejoin back with the essence and reform into what their self was, which is that kind of rebirth, right? Um, so I explained that to. Jim, and then I and then I gave him a few reference points from other types of you know disintegration effects that exist out there, and he came up with a real great first pass. Uh, but that's not even its true end form. So <laughs> for that. I'm like, this has got to be the coolest way to die in a game ever. Like, I'm gonna go and I just killed this corrupt player. Let's go sift through their ashes to find their stuff. Like, how cool is that? I know. You know, and the other thing that you know, just me as a player. I've always had problems in the past uh, with playing games from a story perspective, an immersion perspective. Is that like, hey, my body dies mm -hmm. and then my body now has been duplicated and appears elsewhere with all of my original gear and clothes and all that kind of <laughs> stuff, right? I was like, maybe I can't get away with the gear and clothes thing. That'll have to be a little magical, but at least I can explain the Phoenix. That Everybody That's knows cool. the Phoenix story, right? Oh, yeah. Beautiful. So I got two more. I'm going to try to squeeze in real quick, and then we're going to wrap this up if that's cool. Um, one, uh, Vision of Crimson uh, asked, would you consider letting us use purchased cosmetics that cannot be used in game as craftable items for display in our houses? For example, stuffed pets, snow globe houses, armor stands, stuff like that. If I understand the question correctly, it's referencing cosmetics that have been previously released and are no longer available for purchase and allowing players who've come later and don't own those cosmetics to instead have visual representation through decor items in their home. Well, said used purchase cosmetics that cannot be used in game, but all the cosmetics can be. Yeah, all, all cosmetics can be mm. used in game. Yeah, so there's your answer. And one from Mick Mac Muck, and I felt like this was a good one to end on in terms of questions, um, because, well, we're getting ready for Alpha, right? Soon. Right. Yes. PM <laughs> we, we are definitely getting ready. Our late night hours and the bloodshot eyes are getting real ready for Alpha. <laughs> yes. Yes. The late night hours and the bloodshot eyes are ready to deliver Alpha into all of you. Uh, Mick MacMuck said, many of us are looking forward to the NDA free Alpha footage. What three things would Steven like to draw our attention to as a good sign of progress at this early testing stage? Good question. Very good question. Um, I would say first and foremost is obviously going to be the numbers of players and NPCs that you can have uh, in a single area. Um, and, you know, we haven't uh, really done a lot of optimization for that. We've done a lot of architectural work and changes. And that's what a lot of the testing early on <laughs> has been at a more architecture level. But uh, um, optimizing, uh, there hasn't been too much. And I feel like we've hit a really good place to be, especially with using Unreal Engine 4. Um, you know, I, I'm actually not quite sure of other live 
Unreal Engine 4 games that have the types of concurrent on-screen numbers of live players with thousands of NPCs as well in the area. Mm. I'm sure I can think of them later. I don't know. Maybe not. But um, I would say that's the first and foremost. Uh, the second thing is I would say the quality of the, of the world around you, what you're seeing visually, right? It's one thing to have a technically performant game, and it's another thing to have a visually beautiful thing. <laughs> so I would say, um, you know, the target is obviously to incorporate both of those. Um, and uh, I think that if you look around the world around you, um, you're going to see something that is very immersive and uh, looks really good. Um, and then the third, <laughs> third thing, I would say um, the application and integration of the designs, that the mechanics that exist. I mean, the, we're talking about the three compelling aspects of any video game. We're talking about technical performance, visual uh, uh, beauty, and uh, compelling mechanics. Um, so when I when we talk about mechanics, we're talking about seeing the nodes take this experience in advance, see those nodes propagate in real time, new quest hooks and merchants and NPCs and buildings, and then seeing those nodes influence the world and the points of interest around you and changing the spawners of, of monsters and, and accessing dungeon points and, and seeing, you know, this these systems come to life, seeing a government be formed within your node, voting for a mayor, having that mayor elect building projects, having citizens join the node and have housing available to them and go work on those, those building projects so they can unlock different progression paths with the crafting system and collecting resources and process. I mean, there's all, I guess when you think about projects that you watch get developed and there aren't too many of them, but there are some out there. Um, I think Ashes has done a great job in in showing coming from there to here and bringing the players along every step of the way and now starting to see this in fruition in, an, in a playable alpha that you know people are, are going to be streaming and, and showing. But you need to keep in mind, and this is a very important, important, important part, is that you can see the progress in those three dynamics, but we are still in our first alpha we're or excuse me we're mm -hmm. about to be entering our first alpha yeah. and this is an actual developmental alpha which means that you're going to see bugs and you're going to see not much polish and you're going to see you know systems that <laughs> that might break and mm -hmm. there has to be an understanding that in order for you to see the bigger picture which is where the game will be by launch you got to look past that stuff in alpha. You can comment on things like certain mechanics or design philosophies mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, changes to, you know, the art or something like that. You can talk about those things, but you have to keep in mind that the polish is not going to be there. The bugs are going to be present and this is an alpha. So look at the progress, but look at it with a grain of salt. Yeah. I think, you know, I think my, like as a creator, I think that's like probably one of the most important things you can do is as a creator, when you're streaming or you're creating content is to really like acknowledge the state of where the game is at and to be, you know, constructive in your criticism. I think that's probably some of the most important thing you can do when you create content around a game that's in development like this. Setting um, those proper expectations yeah. is so critically important for people's first yeah. view, first opinion of it, because yeah. they're going to form their first opinion on Absolutely. that. And, and let me say one other thing. I am I'm not a fan of, of white knights, but I will mm -hmm. say it is not a white knight response to say this game is still an alpha. Absolutely and, not. And that is that is a perfectly 
acceptable and something that should be reminded because the majority of viewers who will look at this alpha one are not going to be our community. We have a very large community, but the majority of viewers will actually be people who don't know anything about ashes um, because of just probably the amount of of press and people who are going to stream it. You know, there's going to be a lot of unknowing eyes on the game. So it's, it's our job as a community to remind those players, whoa, 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 you're not seeing a game. You're seeing an alpha yes. <laughs> and there mm-hmm. is a difference Big between difference. those two things uh you know so that's a very important thing and most players most people don't even know what the difference is between those things so really actually it's going to have half effect on somebody to say it's an alpha what the hell is an alpha this is a game i'm seeing it's you know what? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um and you know what i definitely got to respect your time steven i appreciate you giving us a little extra to wrap all those questions up um <clears throat> And, you know, to everybody who's been a part of the show for like three plus years now, like seriously, a shout out to all of you. There's been so many people that have just consistently been here week after week, you know, uh, month after month, persevering, staying the course like a Pathfinder does. Really appreciate all of you and all of your investment, you know, and dropping questions for the show or being here when we're live. It means a lot. Definitely appreciate it. And uh, the show wouldn't be what it is without the, the game we all love and are following and without the community like all of you that you know, persevere week to week, waiting for it patiently or impatiently, whichever the case may be. <laughs> but um, definitely appreciate you taking time to be here, Stephen, uh, as always. Absolutely. Love it. You guys always have fun conversations. Yeah, definitely a lot of fun having you here too. And uh, gentlemen, why don't we let everybody know where they can find you, what your domains are uh, when you're not on the show so they can come catch you when you're live or doing your thing. Dayless. You can catch me on Twitter at the Ashen Herald and on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash the Ashen Herald. And I'm on Twitter at half underscore tilt or on Twitch and YouTube slash half tilt gamer. Yeah. Steven, you want to do you want to promote your your own Twitter now? (laughs) Oh, my God. I have a Twitter. Uh, you can find Ashes anywhere at Ashes of Creation. And then you can find me on Twitter. Uh, what's my Twitter handle? At Stephen J. Sharif. I got you covered. Oh, Stephen J. Sharif has my middle name. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, my middle name is Joseph. Um, but yeah, Stephen J. Sharif. All right, awesome. And uh, listen, if you uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, you can leave a message at our call in number one five three nine six six four six eight zero one. You can leave something for our Pathfinder grunt to dip into that email at ashespathfinders at gmail dot com. Get us something there. You can uh. If you do rate us on iTunes, uh, please leave a five-star review if you're willing. And if you leave a comment, we read those live on the show as well. It really helps with the uh, algorithm on on uh, iTunes if you leave a review and comments are always welcome. And uh, with that being said, friends, you know, it might be the end of the show today. But remember, whether you're here catching us live on the show, um, leaving comments, whatever it is, you're listening to it on the podcast places, you too are an Ashes Pathfinder. We appreciate your time and uh, much love to you all. Much love to Intrepid Studios. And until next time, friends, live your best lives. Stay safe out there. Walk in the light. Have a great night. Good night, everyone.